Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello there, this is Eat Sleep Work Pre. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Now, if you've not already subscribed, there's a weekly email that goes out with the podcast. And this week's included a brilliant article on how teams that are small seem to be more radical. There's also a couple of discussions about the work of Professor Adam Grant, who's been a former guest on the show, but is incredibly prolific. And there's a really good article on laughter in teams. And the laughter in teams article is from some research that NASA is looking at when it comes to sort of casting their first expeditions to Mars. NASA looked at the success of different teams in isolation in Antarctica. And it seemed that when there's a joker in the team, someone sort of gifted in the art of lightening the mood, it helps improve the overall morale of the team. So I found that fascinating. In The Joy of Work, I talked about how the successful Cambridge boat race team, I think in 2008, whose performance was transformed from losing a practice tie to winning the boat race when they promoted a funny colleague to the boat. And that was interesting because he wasn't by any stretch the best performing athlete, but they all just felt themselves to be sort of better in an in, in a better mental state when he was present. So interesting research on that one. And uh, it's a really neglected component of a happy team. If, you, if you've read The Joy Work, you know I'm obsessed with it. So it leads us on to today's guest. Robert Provine's 2000 book, Laughter, is a real page-turner of research about one of the most enjoyable but least studied aspects of modern life. And he's gone on to cover laughter and other human behaviours in his 2013 book, Curious Behaviour, Yawning, Laughing, Hiccuping and Beyond. Provine is the world's expert on the subject. When we talked to Professor Sophie Scott in the live episode of uh, Laughter at Work this time last year, she mentioned Professor Provine several times. And I love the fact that he was the main consultant on products like Tickle Me Elmo. So there's a fascinating discussion. Laughter seems to be a signal of a couple of things, safety and play. And he makes a really interesting point at the end about the current state of politics being filled with the opposite of laughter, which is fear and anger. There was a really interesting exercise a few years ago, and this was sort of called out and mentioned in Dan Lyon's recent book, Lab Rats. But the exercise was conducted by Dan Ariely, and it looked at the data from an organisation called Great Place to Work. Ariely wanted to see if they had anything that correlated with stock data. So he wanted to see if there was any sort of thing in the Great Place to Work data that would allow him to invest in better firms. 
and uh, sort of get an investment advice from that. And he, he took a look. Great Place to Work has been sort of running these experiments since 1981. So they had masses of data on lots of different companies. And he looked through all of it. And there was one factor that leapt out. There was one thing that seemed to correlate with uh, good investment decisions. But it was an odd thing. It was safety. And companies where people consistently reported feeling safe safe at work tended to outperform the stock market average, sometimes by 200%. And it applied to emotional and physical safety. Uh, The other thing that seemed to correlate, actually, was a, a strong sense of welcome. Now, if you listen to Professor Provine talking about laughter, laughter could be in service of all of those things, right? Making us feel safe. Maybe laughter is like the secret ingredient to show that there's psychological safety. But also, it really helps forge a strong sense of welcome. So, uh, really interesting that I, for me, you know, if you're looking at those things that seem to correlate with success... 200% outperformance of the stock market. Laughter might be one of the things that helps us get there. Fascinating. So let's introduce him. Professor Robert Provine is a neuroscientist and professor of psychology at the University of Maryland in Baltimore. I called him on the phone to pick his brain. Here's our chat. Professor Provan, I'm, I'm so thrilled to talk to you. Um, we've been trying to, to set this up for 12 months, so it's, it's great to finally get the, the chance to chat to you. I wonder if we could kick off by, I wonder if you could introduce yourself to us. Yeah, I'm Robert Provine. Uh, I'm a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Uh, I have broad interest from electrophysiology and neuroanatomy to everyday behavior and, of people in public places. And the thing I was taken, I, I was really uh, captivated by your wonderful book, Laughter, which is, um, which is probably sort of 15, 18 years old now. But um, I just wonder if we could sort of kick off by, by talking through, well, firstly, one of the things you address, I think, in the book is that laughter is not that well studied, is it? It's, it's not, uh, certainly compared to depression and anxiety, there's not a lot of scientific papers on it. Why, why do you think that's the case? Well, the uh, history of laughter study actually is rather old uh, in that, uh, you know, some of the oldest uh, uh, scholarly works, you know, dating from Plato, you can't get much older than that, uh, have very much concerned with laughter. So philosophers have very much been concerned with laughter and its important in life. Uh, for example, Plato, Aristotle, and, you know, great people uh, throughout history have been concerned with it. But uh, their approach was basically to try to reason through it. And one of the, my motives for writing a book about it is that it's, uh, I think, not very profitable to try to rationalize the irrational. If you want to understand laughter, you have to describe what it is and when we do it. And uh, when you look at those things, it leads you to a very different place uh, than uh, the philosopher's musings. And that was a motive for writing the book, because simply a short paper wasn't enough uh, to try to uh, establish a kind of new synthesis, a new way of looking at this everyday behavior. And you set out at the, at the outset, I think probably understandably, you set out to try and capture moments of laughter and, and you brought people into the lab or you brought people into an environment and tried to make them laugh. And that proved difficult. Do you want to explain how you went from that experiment and then what you ended up doing. 
Yeah, my research uh, <clears throat> was really a, a, ch- uh, a series of what seemed to initially be failures, but they were really successes that I just uh, didn't rec- recognize their importance at the time. Uh, you know, for example, I uh, decided, well, we'll uh, look at the kinds of things, for example, jokes that get people to laugh, and then study the laughter. And what I found was that it's hard to get people to laugh in the laboratory. And this, again, was a kind of uh, disappointment. It was a kind of failure. Uh, how can I study a behavior if I'm having trouble getting people to do it? And then it occurred to me, wait, uh, this is really a success. I learned that if you want to look at this uh, communication between people, you need to get out of the lab and look at the interactions between, uh, between people in everyday life. This was a, a kind of novel approach to me uh, who was traditionally been a rather lab-bound scientist. Okay, so I went out to look at laughter in public places. And uh, there I was met with another surprise, another disappointment, but a a success in disguise. What I found was that when I wanted to study uh, what happened before people laughed, uh, one of the things that I found was, wait, the person talking to another person is actually laughing more than the person they're talking to. I thought, oh, no, this is a big problem. What am I going to do? And then I discovered that, on average, speakers actually laugh more than the person they're what? speaking to. Uh, that hadn't been understood previously. And, and why, why was that the case? Because you're exactly right. It would be, it'd be sort of counter to what we'd expect. If someone described you a scene where the speaker was laughing more, I think we often imagine that speakers laugh less, right, than the audience. Yeah, it's because we have this, I think, an inappropriate scenario a stand-up comedy is a model for everyday laughter, and that fails in a number of counts. You know, for example, stand-up comedy, uh, where you have a, a comedian uh, telling jokes uh, to an audience that laughs. A good comedic performer is not supposed to laugh themselves. Okay, so uh, everyday behavior yeah. uh, shows that, yeah. you know, while both speaker and laugh and audience laugh a lot, the speaker actually, uh, on average, laughs somewhat more. So that was a surprise. There was another way in which we found that stand-up comedy was a bad model for everyday behavior. You know, people think, oh, you know, you laugh because someone does something funny. Of course, saying something funny is not very informative. It just means something funny is something that made you laugh. But typically think a person did something humorous, something jokey. And when we observed what was said before most laughter occurs is that it wasn't a joke. In fact, only maybe 10 or 15% of all pre-laugh comments were anything that seemed to be remotely joke-like. Now, this was a, a, another surprise. And I, I think, wait, we didn't miss something. This is not a, one of those times where you think, well, you had to be there. You know, if you were there, you would have seen there's the, all these other kinds of yeah. subtle cues. And that's not really the case. You can test uh, this as well as a number of other things that we're going to discuss. You don't have to take my word for it. Uh, since we, you know, our lives yeah. are full of laughter, uh, simply observe when you laugh, why you laughed. And I, I think you can, you can either confirm or disprove some of the things that uh, we're discussing. I think it, I certainly recognize that with the list of phrases that you gave. And, and, and I immediately, you know, it was things like your turn next or good luck with that or we'll, we'll see. And, you know, and, and immediately I recognized, yeah, they're exactly the sort of things that people say 
you know, that maybe a meeting's just broken up, people will say something, and exactly as you say, it's not a funny thing, but we, we seem to activate laughter. Yeah, it's, uh, our lives are full of things like, hey, Bruce, where you been? <laughs> things like yeah. that. Again, just yeah. observe, you know, what you do when you laugh, and you find that you can be at a party, and the party's full of laughing people, but people are not telling each other jokes at a furious rate. Other research that I'd done indicated that the critical ingredient for laughter is relationship. Other people, not jokes. For example, we laugh 30 times more often when we're around other people than when we're alone. When you're by yourself, laughter virtually disappears. Those cases where you laugh when you're alone are things like you think of something that happened uh, in interactions with other people, uh, you're reading about people in a book, uh, you're listening to the radio, you're listening to podcasts, watching the television, watching the television and you laugh, you're laughing at the people in the box. But if you take away those sources of vicarious social stimulation, laughter disappears. Again, 30 times more often in social and solitary situation. So if you want laughter, you have to be around other people. And you've also studied something else, which is a sort of contagious human phenomenon, which is yawning. And what, what would you say then, having studied both, are the connections between laughter and yawning? Well, I studied them both because they're related. They're both human instincts. You don't have to learn to yawn. You don't have to learn to laugh. They just naturally develop. They're also both contagious in that we laugh when we hear other people laugh. You know, that's the reason why you have laugh tracks in television situation comedies. And you also yawn when you see other people yawn or talk about yawning like we're doing right now. We're listening to a yawn. Okay, it's very potent. But laughter, contagious laughter, occurs almost instantly when you hear laughter, while yawning can occur several seconds later. But I considered both lines of investigation to be simpler uh, in the sense that I was looking at basically, you know, how the brain works, the relationship between brain and behavior. And I decided these were the two of the most rigorous and also uh, neglected approaches to the topic. By looking at contagion, uh, we have a bridge between neuroscience and the social sciences, something that's in sh definitely in short supply. So when we laugh, when we hear other people laugh, we don't decide, oh, I want to laugh too. <laughs> it just happens. And in both cases, you know, we don't laugh uh, usually because we want to laugh. We don't yawn because we want to yawn. It simply happens. You know, so we go laughing our way through life, obeying a kind of instinctive biological script. You know, we have this notion that we're rational beings in total voluntary control over behavior, but laughter, like yawning, shows that this isn't true. For example, if you ask, well, I'll ask you right now, will you laugh for me, please? Yeah, you know that it's going to be sort of an uncomfortable artificial laugh, right? You know, in fact, even the thought of just trying to do it now makes me feel uncomfortable. Yeah, most people, about half people will say, well, I can't laugh at command. And the other half will try and fail rather miserably, you know, in instead of giving yeah. you something like, ha, 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 okay. Not convincing. Actors, of course, are going to be better at this. Throughout the years, from yeah. the ancient philosophers to the present, there's this notion that laughter, we speak ha-ha, the way we would speak a word in speech. And this is clearly not the case. Because, uh, for example, will you say ha-ha? Ha-ha. <laughs> okay, that's easy. But if you ask someone to laugh, you're going to find that most can't do it persuasively. So we go through life, laughing our way yeah. through life. It's not under conscious control. We are not the uh, rational beings we fancy ourselves to be.
So let's. Un- so what? So why are we doing it? So so uh, is it about synchronising ourselves with people around us? Why would we have these involuntary reactions? Well, we are synchronizing ourselves with others. You know, whether we yawn when you see another person yawn or laugh when we hear another person laugh, we're sort of bonding with that other individual. So this is the kind of behavior that bonds us and promotes relationships. Laughter brings us together. Again, much of the talk about laughing our way to health and so on, which is sort of an iffy thing. I think uh, clearly a life well-lived is going to be full of laughter. But is laughter going to make us happy Is laughter going to make us healthy? Perhaps not. Maybe healthy people simply laugh more. But if we ask the question, what is laughter? It suggests some important things here. Laughter is the sound of play. If we trace the evolution of laughter from our ancient primate relatives, and we can do this by studying chimpanzees and other great apes, they too laugh. If you tickle a chimpanzee, or they tickle each other, they produce their version of the laugh, which I'll provide a, a version of this, seeing that humans are, one of, are a, really a chimpanzee in good standing. I, I'm qualified to do this. Here's a chimpanzee laugh. <laughs> it's, a, it's a kind of panning sound, okay? It sounds different than human laughter in that if you take that sound and you play it to an audience, a naive audience, doesn't know what the sound is and ask them what they're hearing. No one volunteers their hearing laughter. They may say, I'm listening to panting, maybe a dog. Am I listening to people having sacks? Some people say it, it sounds like sanding or sawing. Anyway, that gives us a hint. First of all, other, other animals laugh, but they laugh with somewhat different vocalization. In those cases, it's like pant, pant as a chimpanzee laughter. <laughs> they make one sound per inward and outward breath. This is different. This evolved in the human laughter where we chop an outward breath. So pant, pant (laughs) became ha, ha, ha. So in humans, our ha, ha, ha sound involves the chopping, the parsing of an outward breath, just as I'm talking to you now. Chimpanzees don't laugh that way. They make one sound for inward and outward breath. In fact, contrasting human and chimpanzee laughter may indicate why we can talk and they can't. They don't have sufficient breath control to modulate an outward breath. In the contentious area of ape language, everyone agrees that you can't teach a chimp to talk. You can teach them to sign, but you can't teach them to talk. The reason is they can't make the fancy sounds like I'm talking to you right now, is parsing an outward breath to make sounds. They can't do it. Who would have guessed that breath control is the reason, the key to the reason why we can talk and other animals can't, is breath control and laughter provided the key. Who would have guessed and, it? And tell me though, so, so um, the, I think the, the way that you describe it in the book is that you say effectively then, you know, whether it's chimpanzees or whether it's humans, effectively then the, um, there seems to be a function served by laughing and it seems to be to some extent showing each, each other that, that there's safety there and you, you mentioned play. But um, you, you describe you describe laughter as, as closer to an impoverished human song, like a, a, a bird song. Do you want to just explain why, what you mean by that? Yeah, la- laughter, laughter is a species typical, meaning that all members of our species do it. It's a play vocalization. It, it's a uh, signal that I want to play with you. I'm not attacking you. So in chimps, they make this... <laughs> 
Actually, dogs make a kind of panning yeah. sound like that, too, when they want to play. So the, the sound of laughter really started out as the sound of labored breathing yeah. during rough-and-tumble play. And then the sound of labored breathing became the signal for play. And that's the signal that chimps, for example, send to each other. In our case, it's one step removed. So instead of going pant, pant, the way our ancestors did, we go ha, ha. And that's a symbol that I want to play. So laughter is really the sound of play. And when you hear laughter, you have you know cases where people are playing with each other, whether it's the more physical rough and tumble of childhood or it's adult play more often happens in the arena of conversation. In regard to the workplace, you know, for example, if you have people laughing in the workplace, this means that they're in a playful mood. They're having fun and also will indicate they're around other people. So when you find laughter, whether it's in the workplace or someplace else, it means play is happening and another person is present. So connect those two things for me, because I can definitely see laughter working in a scenario of playing. But you also said that we find ourselves laughing in work environments where nothing funny has taken place. So is is it because we're trying to reactivate that sense of playful safeness is there a, are they different or the same, the notion of play and the notion of safety? They're related, but, you know, for example, some play you know, can involve, you know, risk and physicality and other kind of things. But the key is that when you laugh, you're basically producing this ancient vocalization that's play. It has to do with relationships with another person. It's not related to jokes. And also, you don't have voluntary control over it. So, for example, you know, a lot of people will talk about, I laugh for this reason or that reason. Uh, I think, basically, that's just an attempt to create a, an account, a kind of post hoc account for why, why we did something. But you're trying to rationalize the irrational. A better approach, and the one that I've taken in my research, is basically simply observe what people do. Don't ask them why they did it, because first of all, they don't know, and you're not going to get good information about that. They may say, oh, I laughed because I was nervous. I laughed to put someone else at ease, you know, whatever. Uh, and I think, no, none of those things are really true. That's just an attempt to try to explain what you did, because people are not willing to accept the fact that it just happened. Suggesting that something just happened doesn't mean that there is not a script, a kind of underlying lawfulness of it. I think that that is one of the exciting things that you know I learned in in pursuing this is we humans you know are, are not like a, a captain of our ship uh, guiding ourselves through the the shoals avoiding icebergs and so on it basically all this is happening at an unconscious level of course just because it's unconscious doesn't mean that it's not lawful it's not predictable I, I guess you know once we've established that it's serving a role in a work environment where it's signaling safety it's it's to some extent sort of forging a sync forging a connection with with other people is there anything that we and and you'd presume that all of those things are desirable in a work environment is there anything we can do to stimulate more laughter yeah, if you want more laughter, you need to be around people and you need to be uh, in a lower pressure, playful environment. The situation that produces the most laughter actually is a uh, male talking to a female. The female audience laughs the most. Also, females talking to males 
laugh more than a male talking to a female. Hang on. So, so there's something in that, right? So firstly, why do females laugh more than males? And, and secondly, is there a power thing in the, in the way that laughter is distributed then? Yeah, there may be. But as in my other work, I didn't start off with any kind of assumption. I just observed what's happening. For example, worldwide, and a lot of my results have been uh, replicated in other cultures almost exactly. We find is, you know, for example, class clowns in school are almost always male. Uh, also, if you look at everyday life, you know, who talks and who laughs? The people talking that's most reliably followed by laughter are males. So both males and females laugh more when a male than a female is talking to them. But then again, since laughter is not consciously controlled, this isn't an issue where males decide, I'm not going to laugh when a woman is talking to them. It just happens. And it may very well uh, reflect uh, power relationships. I remember reading General Schwarzkopf, uh, the, uh, the sort of the former leader of the U.S. military, and he said that he was, by any account, a, a deeply unfunny man. He said, you know, I've never said anything funny until the day I became commander in chief or the commander of the, the U.S. forces. And then it appeared like I was the funniest man in the world. And, and he, he re, he's related a story of how everywhere he went, if he said something that was even moderately funny, it would generate laughter from lots of people. So the, there does seem to be something, doesn't there, in the fact that we, we tend to laugh around people who are uh, in a more elevated status than us. Yeah, and it's always safer to laugh with people in power than laugh at them. You know, so if they're making an effort of humor, everyone else is sort of like going to help them along. Uh, also, a given person can have a, a very different kind of laugh life, life uh, in different contexts. You know, for example, a person in position of power could be a prime minister, for example. That person uh, is going to have a very different audience reaction when they're in that role as opposed to talking to some of their old schoolmates when they were at university, for example. You know, so you might be laughing along with uh, you know, your old pals, but in the position of authority, you know, there may be a lot less laughter except uh, laughing with. You know, laughter is downward, typically. For example, a person in power can make fun. Uh, for example, the, the unfortunate American president we have is very good at ridicule, so, has no sense of irony and no sense of self-deprecation. So I was going to come on to, to him because in James Comey's book, uh, about his time being the FBI director. He, he takes several pages to talk about Donald Trump and how he says that he worked, Comey says he worked directly with George W. Bush, he worked directly with Obama, and he said both of them used laughter to relax a room, to make people feel at ease speaking up. They used laughter to ridicule themselves, to, to sort of level the hierarchy in a room. And, and Comey observes, in the whole time that um, he was with Trump, he never saw him laugh. But when he did laugh, it was always ridiculing people. Do you want to just explain that then? Yeah, well, also there was an amusing incident with uh, uh, Trump speaking to the United Nations last year uh, when he was talking about he had had the most successful American uh, administration for the first two years in uh, history. And uh, the audience laughed at him. That's and right. I think he couldn't relate to that. You know, basically, he doesn't have a category for that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid irony, irony has died. <laughs> he was completely bemused by it, wasn't he? He didn't quite understand 
Uh, yeah, he just, it, he just sort of stopped, and uh, I forget exactly what he said. He but. says, you laugh, that's fine, that's fine, something like that. He, he couldn't, in, it was like this real dissonance in his head. He couldn't quite take it in, could he? No, he couldn't. But, uh, yeah, that's an important part of, again, the, uh, you know, just as talking with listening to other people and laughing along with them is an important part of bonding. You know, that's a, a difference between bonding and pontificating, which, which I guess explains, in James Comey's description, it explains how George W. Bush and uh, President Obama used laughter. They used laughter as a way to relax the people around them, to, to some extent build a bit of psychological safety, to, that people would feel more com- comfortable in, in contributing. And they seem to use laughter in a classic way. Yeah, in my, in my book I talked about, uh, you know, for example, American presidents who were particularly adept at this, and actually one of the first American presidents to hold a television press conference, and of course he did it because he was good at it, and the press loved him, was uh, John F. Kennedy. He was funny, and yet it didn't diminish his uh, role as leader. You know, it's a, it's a delicate line. You mentioned Schwarzkopf, but you know, how many general, funny generals are there? American generals may be very funny when they're talking about some of their old buddies back at West Point, but they're not funny as commander. You know, basically there you're not looking for so much relationships as, uh, you know, a general means that basically you have general responsibilities. You know, there's the weight of commands. So they're basically telling you people what to do and they better do it. Because laughter, laughter also seems to activate creativity. Or, you know, in, in what I saw was that it seems to, maybe it's back to that sense of play, actually. Maybe that's why it's sort of by making people more relaxed they seem to be more willing to expose themselves and 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 give more expansive ideas yeah i think that uh, you know you're going to be more creative in the workplace if if you see if you see the work as an extension of play as opposed to just uh, turning the crank and i, I think for example uh, again uh, laughter is a uh, a sign that play is going on in the work environment, and that's a, that's a positive thing. Uh, and as opposed to a lot of people who've seen traditionally laughter as something that, you know, like we can laugh our way to health, I think, which is a more tenuous proposition. Now, I'm certainly not arguing against laughter. If you're feeling poorly, where laughter may be beneficial, but maybe since laughter is a sign of social relationships, you know, maybe... Uh, We've misplaced our priorities. Maybe if laughter does contribute to good health, it's because laughing people are in, uh, engaged in playful relationships. So there's, so there's the social component uh, as well as the play component. Yeah, I don't mean to be the, the uh, skunk at the tea party here. You know, I'd say laughter uh, feels good when we do it. Isn't that enough? Does it have to cure cancer or make your kidney disease go away? I think no. And to the extent in which it may contribute to good health, it may be uh, simply the role of play and uh, the role of right, relationships. Okay, okay. So it's almost like it's uh, laughter exists in a relaxed environment, and a relaxed environment might lead to better health. But you know, the, the notion that you can laugh your way to good health is probably is, is probably a, a leap too far. Yes, I, I believe it is. 
tell me this. In, in the, it's been, you know, it's been one of the things you've studied. But would you say that in in the world we live in now, laughter is less frequent? Or certainly, uh, the reason I enter that with with a vested interest, I, I feel that people laugh less at work now than they might have done in the past. And I, I'm not sure if that's me romanticising that, or you know, having rose-tinted glasses looking at the past. What's your view on it? Well, I, I believe that uh, you're probably right there. My guess is that serious science, I'm not talking about simply competence, but I mean people that are really working at the frontiers of their discipline. We're talking about a work week that probably starts at 60 to 80 hours a week. And of course, there's some hardcore techies that say commitment starts at 100 hours a week. And there's a lot of people that do that. You know, that's a challenging thing. Also, I find uh, the political environment, you know, we talk about whether it's uh, national socialist in Germany or the Soviet regime, or could even have more democratic uh, regimes these days, you know, whether it be May in the UK or or Trump, especially, for example, Trump uh, basically bases his power base uh, depends upon fear and anger. And fear and anger are not conducive to laughter, except the occasional ridicule. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We covered a lot there, right? If you're interested in, in this, do check out Professor Provine's books, Laughter and Curious Behaviour. They're both worth checking out. If you've enjoyed this, please do give us a rating at Apple Podcasts. I never peddle that enough, but Apple Podcasts is a racket where unless, you, uh, unless you're trying to get ratings all the time, you slip down the charts. If you've enjoyed it, so do give us a rating and recommend it to a friend. You can always connect to me on LinkedIn 
or you can sign up for our email and you'll find that with all the podcast episodes at eatsleepworkrepeat.fm so you can sign up and receive that email now. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.